Imagine, you're a scientist tasked with bringing dinosaurs to life. That must be both the most exciting and terrifying thought in the world. Not many would be up to the task, and the man who was, unfortunately, didn't get to make them scientifically accurate, nor could he control their development. I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Henry Wu in the popular Jurassic Park franchise. And today, we're talking about his creations, dinosaurs, and how they teach us how biology always finds a way. Hey, what's up everyone, and welcome to the Ben Van Alles podcast, the show where we talk about a lot of things. I'm your host Ben, neurodivergent mess, member of the LGBT plus community, dinosaur enthusiast, and honestly, way too much into Marvel. Today, we're talking about how Jurassic Park teaches us about sex and gender spectrums. So let's get into it. So before we can understand how Jurassic Park teaches us these things, we need to have a bit of an understanding what sex and gender actually are. Sex is a term that describes a combination of physiological characteristics related to the human reproductive system. The characteristics are, for example, chromosomes, your gonads, so your ovaries or your testes, hormones, genitalia, and secondary characteristics like, say, breast tissue or facial hair. We generally categorize them into two different categories. This involves making assumptions about someone's body at birth. One, that there are only two different set of sex traits that always neatly combine to create the two sex categories. And two, that all of these traits never change over the course of a person's life. The way we categorize them is, of course, we have female on the one side and male on the other. If we look at the bell curves that were created to categorize these things, those are the two that are always on each side of the binary. The truth is that in between those two are a wild variety of all of these combinations of, say, your gonads, your chromosomes, your genitalia, secondary characteristics, hormones that lie in between those two neatly made categories. So it's not quite as simple as we think. And that's exactly what happens in Jurassic Park. Now, before we move on to that bit, I also want to talk a little bit about gender. Because gender, too, is a complex system of identities, expressions, and roles that are usually assigned based on the appearance of one's genitalia at birth. And how it is represented and defined actually varies from culture to culture and from person to person even. And just like with sex categories, the separation of these gender categories involves making assumptions, which include that a person's gender will be predictable based on their assigned sex at birth, so that they will match, to say, and that all people fall neatly into one or two gender categories. Mostly we say men and woman, or masculine and feminine. And the truth is gender can actually be further broken down by the following. 
The first has a biological and a social constructed component, which is gender identity, which is the language a person uses to define their gender. But it also refers to a person deeply felt internal and individual experience of gender, which may or may not correspond to the person's physiology or designated sex at birth. So what that actually means is that there is a bit of a biological component in knowing what you are, but then there's also a very socially constructed component in how we see those identities. So in Western culture, it's mostly, you know, man, big, strong, uh, goes out for the hunts or goes out to work uh, and woman, you know, from traditional values takes care of the kids and the home. Of course, that's no longer true. And there is something to be said that it's not true in every culture. It's very much of a Western Christian culture that made that up. But it's through those cultural constructs that we come to understand our own gender. So there's a bit of, of both that we as humans need to really figure out our identity and to have the language to express it. Now, gender can also be further broken down in gender expression, which is how one expresses themselves in relation to their gender. And that can be with clothes, mannerisms, hairstyles, names uh, that they've either chosen themselves or that were given to them at birth. And a person's gender expression is also not necessarily in line with what is expected for their assigned sex or even with their gender identity. So what we mean by that is that you'll find, you know, men can wear dresses or skirts and, you know, that's just an expression of their gender or of themselves even, because gender doesn't really have much to do with clothes, except that our culture assigns genders to clothes, which is a bit weird in my opinion, but that's the way things are at the moment. So yeah, those, those are things that one can do to express their gender or what gender means to them. Then the third one is gender roles, which is social expectations of ideal masculinity and femininity, which is what we said at the first point, you know, and gender roles are like, you know, the man takes care of, of the income and, and making sure everybody is safe and a woman takes care of um, the kids and, and the home, which is, of course, no longer true, and which is a good thing, honestly. I'm, you know, on this show, we are all for equality, feminism, you know, taking care of things together and making an income together. I think that's really important. And I think it's important to divide those things. That is, of course, not how traditional values are made and traditional gender roles. But I think it's finally good that we're trying to break through them. I think we're making progress in that. But that is how we as a Western culture very much define gender and how we see it. And I'm also going to talk a little bit in order to further understand what's going on at Jurassic Park about what is a cisgender person. A cisgender person is a person whose gender identity matches their assigned sex at birth. So say someone who identifies as a man was assigned male at birth. That is a cisgender man. Now, if you're talking about trans people, those are people whose gender identity do not match their assigned sex at birth. So if you have someone who identifies as a man, but was assigned female at birth, we call them a trans man. They are a trans man. Now, what is important to note that gender identity in this case always 
trumps, so to say, their assigned sex at birth. It's always who a person says they are that determine how one should talk to them and address them. So if you trans men are men, trans women are women, and non-binary people are non-binary because that's who they are. That's their gender identity. And personally, here on the show, we think one should respect that. So that's that's where we stand in uh, in that. But that's how things work. And the way we currently classify things is called the binary system. And that system, of course, is is very old in a way. And it is founded on this idea that the two things we see the most, so the two classifications, are the two things that can only occur. And that everything in between is just an outlier. So it's, it's a mutation or something else. The truth to that is what we're now reevaluating on that system is that it's far more complicated and that even in the current binary definitions, there are a wild variety of combinations that can occur and, and still have a very binary seemingly outcome. But the truth is that even someone who appears man and identifies as a man could still have XX chromosomes uh, if a certain mutation in those chromosomes occurred. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's not a man. It just means that, you know, it's, it's not as simple as people previously thought. And in a way, we kind of knew that. In a way, we kind of knew that there were all these different varieties that could occur. That's not the way we classified things. And we're finally starting to come loose from that a little. We're st finally starting to adopt the idea of spectrum more. And that's actually what we use now in our literature and in our scientific research is the gender and sex spectrums because our understanding has grown. So what has all of this to do with Jurassic Park? Well... One of the things that occurs in uh, Jurassic Park is actually the dinosaurs find a way to breed. So nature finds a way, so to speak. And what that teaches us is that sex is indeed not as binary as we think. And that even within nature itself, there's actually a wild variety of species, including frogs, as they say in the movie itself, which was actually from a 1998 study that I will link down below. But there are certain frogs and there are certain fish even, many, many different species of fish, who are what we call sequential hermaphrodites. And what that basically means is that they have the ability throughout their life when either biological components change or environmental components change, they have the ability to switch from one sex to the other. And they do that in, in a certain step-by-step -step basis in which they gradually change in order to keep the species going, as it were, and in order to create more biological diversity. So in a way, it's actually nature's foolproof way to ensure the survival of species. And I, personally, I think that's pretty interesting. And that's actually what is happening in Jurassic Park. So what it actually teaches us what the movie actually teaches us is that one, nature cannot be controlled and no matter how hard you try, you will always fail at it because biological diversity, whether that, you know, within humans is within the sex spectrum or the gender spectrum or the sexual orientation spectrum or the romantic uh, orientation spectrum, biological diversity is almost always a win for the species. And I think 
very much in, in the case of gender diversity and sex diversity and sexual orientation diversity, it very much is. I mean, if we look further into, say, other animals like the fish or even penguins and birds, there are over 70 species of animals on this planet that actually have same-sex relationships. And there are, I believe, over 70 species of fish who also have the ability to change their sex. So it's, it's not something that does not occur very frequently. It actually occurs pretty frequently. And it's also a pretty interesting thing to see. And what Jurassic Park very much taught us in that is one, of course, you know, nature cannot be controlled and nature will find a way as they say it in the, in the movie itself. But what it also teaches us is that gender roles and gender expectations are not quite as black and white as, as we see them as. And that any gender actually have a wild variety of capabilities for either protecting others or nurturing others that we as a species haven't fully accepted in some, some cases yet. So I think... To me, at least, Jurassic Park was very much on the frontier of that narrative. And of course, there are different interpretations of that movie, and everyone is free to interpret it the way they want to. But for me, it very much thought about diversity and about how one can always rise above what people expect of you, especially in a survival situation, which is what Ellie Sattler, of course, does. Of course, I also think it's it's a very interesting little thing that within the movie, it's, it's mostly the women that actually get things done. It is in a pretty smart change from the books, actually. It is Lex who, of course, hacks the Unix system, which is a big scene. And of course, it is also Ellie that gets the power back on and has uh, a few moments as well to really shine through in her role as the heroine so to speak. And I think they did a pretty good job in, in showcasing both of the main characters of Ellie Sattler and Alan Grant as competent and compassionate, but also as very nurturing. I think both of them have those qualities in them. And I thought it was pretty interesting to see in the movies itself. So yeah, I actually really think that that is what Jurassic Park teaches us. And I think it's a very interesting way of looking at the movie. And I hope more people do because, you know, trans dinosaurs are pretty cool. Dinosaurs are pretty cool in, in general, but especially if they're trans. I, I may be a bit... <laughs> I may be a little bit uh, biased on that one. All right. Now that we've um, discussed some pretty heavy material on what sex and what gender is and how Jurassic Park teaches that, I, I also want to throw in a few more random dinosaur and Jurassic Park facts, which... I think are pretty interesting. It's actually about one of my favorite dinosaurs. It's about the Nonicus. And the thing about the Nonicus is, is that it was the blueprint for a Velociraptor in the Jurassic Park movies. And that was actually a thing that was discussed between Michael Crichton and the, the, the namer of the Nonicus, John Ostrom, when Crichton wrote his books because at the time, Velociraptor and Anonychus were... They hadn't really figured out what the difference between the two was. So by the time the books were, were written, Crichton actually used Velociraptor for the word Anonychus. And they had a chance to rectify it in the movies. But from what we know, Spielberg actually 
I thought Velociraptor just sounded a lot cooler, even though Velociraptors are actually only about the size of a turkey. So there, there's a big difference between the two. Now about Deinonychus, its name actually means terrible claw in Greek. And it's an early Cretaceous theropod dinosaur, which means that it walked on two legs. That's, that's what theropod means. It was a small carnivore, like in the movies. And also like in the movies, it had these large curved sickle claws on each foot. What they think that they used them for is probably for hunting or for climbing. They're not entirely sure yet. They're also not entirely sure if they were pack hunters. There's some evidence to suggest that they weren't. Mostly on the teeth that they found in, in younger animals and in older animals, there seems to be a bit of a difference. So they're not entirely sure about that one yet. Now, Denonychus was actually not discovered by John Ostrom. They were named by John Ostrom, but it was Barnum Brown in 1931 who actually discovered the dinosaur. And what happened is Brown found the skeleton more or less by coincidence because it was actually digging for the fossils of Tenontosaurus. And of course, John Ostrom then found his, his, his findings and named that small dinosaur uh, Deinonychus after he went back to the Clover Formation. John Ostrom was actually also the first paleontologist who made the suggestion that birds evolved from dinosaurs. And he was also one of the, I believe he was also one of the advisors on at least the books. I'm not sure if he was also an advisor on the movies. I think that was pretty cool when I learned that. And that the suggestion that we now kind of take as fact that birds evolved from dinosaurs, because there's a lot more evidence that we have now for that, that that came from the same man who, dis who named Anonychus. I, th I just think that's a really cool fact. So, yeah, now that we have had some discussion about sex and gender and even had some Anonychus facts thrown in, I also want to wrap things up with a little bit of a last segment. And I, I've named that little segment, You Are Who You Are, and that's okay. Because I do want to leave this episode with a bit of a message for everyone like me who feels like the current society and the current roles imposed on them doesn't really truly reflect who they are. And you really just want to exist the way that you do without constant judgment. And I know how hard that can be. And I just want to tell people like me, Hey, it's okay. You are who you are, and that's okay. Just be you, be kind, be the best person that you can be, and just have a lot of love in your heart. And you will find the people that will give you that love in return. So I, I truly do hope that you find it as well. And I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that you like listening to it, because I sure love making it, and I worked really hard on this. So for now, I want to thank you all for listening to the Ben Vanellis podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed this episode and that I will see you all again for the next one. Now don't forget to rate, review or comment on this episode as it would help me out a lot. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can do that on ko-fi.com slash or you can go to my website benvanallaspodcast.com. I will leave links to all of my social media down below. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram where my handle is at benvanallas. Or you can follow me on Tumblr, where the handle is Podcast. For now, I will be signing off, and I will see you all again in two weeks. Mm -hmm.